Dr. Holly Hudley, who recently got her PhD in philosophy and religious studies and is such a welcome speaker here. Thank you, ma'am. We just went back and forth on whether she should introduce me or not. I said, you love being in front of people. Go for it. <laughs> so welcome to Ordinary Life. I'm glad you guys are here. It's nice to be here. I want to begin the way that we always begin, which is by saying, no matter who you are and no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. We had a little, like, wild goose chase on getting the right adapter because we don't have the iPad mini and it's Apple, you know, whatever. So here we are. I'm reading off of two things. <laughs> Forgive me for any slips, but I will do my best. So I want to start by saying um, thank you again. It's good to see y'all. And I'm going to touch on a subject that we're all inundated with and none of us maybe quite know how to make sense of, and that is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And that weekend that Hamas attacked Gaza, I actually ironically was sitting in an online seminar for my spiritual direction program. And that day, that whole weekend was committed to learning from the Abrahamic, learning about the Abrahamic faiths, starting with Judaism, Islam, and then Christianity. We were listening to a reformed, actually converted Jew, and a Sufi Muslim, so Sufism is the mystical arm of Islam, about those two religions. And each of them spoke about their traditions being rooted in peace. So sharing that foundation. And neither of them actually directly addressed the conflict. It had just happened hours before. And I think when you've prepared a talk and something like that happens, I'm not sure that the emotional bandwidth exists to be able to talk about it to a room full of strangers or people who might not share your faith. I'm guessing in the wake of that terror, they were not emotionally equipped to really address it. Um, we asked about it, and I think, again, you protect your well-being. Conflict has plagued that region for decades, taking each group so far away from their origins and peace. This issue between Israel and Palestine is far more complex then I can stand up here and give rationale for, there is no rationale in, within an hour. That's not what I'm talking about today. But I do know that each is rooted in trying to reclaim an annihilated identity. There's no justification for acts of terror like Hamas committed. There are grievances that extend beyond Hamas. In other words, Palestinians who don't believe in Hamas have grievances also. Israelis have pain, Palestinians have pain around this land. I know that Israel was established for a lost and traumatized people seeking a home. I also know that Palestine, Palestinians have been subjugated and lost much of their land. I know these two religions are more like siblings than cousins. And I know that I don't think people should be annihilated because of their identity in any case. So the third sibling in the Abrahamic faiths is, of course, Christianity. There's definitely an irony in the fact that a Catholic priest was giving a talk to us on, uh, on Christianity and, and the liberatory roots of it, because as we know, Christianity has also committed some of the worst human rights atrocities in 
the uh, Inquisition and Crusades, but it also has an origin in peace. And these three religions have a thread that are both committed to liberation and justice. Each faith contains contradictions, and each faith contains similarities. And each of the speakers pointed to their shared values, and these are more shared values than they are different. Each also pointed to the dangers of extremism as being incredibly problematic and destructive. So this is where we sit. <laughs> and I'm going to tug on some of the threads that are similar within these religions. And I don't want to flatten them by saying, they're similar. Don't worry about the differences. It's kind of like everyone's showing up and having only salad for a potluck. Like, <laughs> we, we, they are not so similar that we should flatten them. The differences are, in fact, what make them beautiful and what make the, them challenging. But there are these same threads, uh, these mystical threads that unite the three of them. Do y'all want to see how, like, this is, there's like one word as I'm following in my notes, so I'm like, <laughs> where am I? This is hilarious. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, religion didn't create us. We created religion. It shapes us. And it is a tool that helps us to explain the unexplainable. It's a tool that provides insight into what it means to become more human. As far as I know, we are the only creatures who use religion as a central galvanizing force, as a way to make meaning. No one religion innately possesses the truth more than any other, but each one has higher and lower expressions of itself. Make sense? We have kind of awake expressions of each religion, and we have sort of sleeping expressions of each religion. I don't think we would be killing each other if we were all operating in the highest expression of our religions. Part of becoming more human is learning how to be in harmony with our difference rather than threatened by them. I learned a story over that weekend that is said to be the essential kind of story that founded Sufism, the mystical arm of Islam, as I've mentioned. I hope that this story that's sharing it can help us both hold on to the contradictions and the intersections of the enormity of our task of becoming more human. There was a time when Moses, this is a photograph of Moses splitting the seas. Um, <laughs> Moses is instrumental in the creation of Islam. There's a thread. He, was, he claimed to be the wisest man on earth, and God said, uh-uh-uh, no, you're not. He tells him, you need to go seek out Al-Qadir. And Al-Qadir is like a mythical figure. He's, he's, a, he's, he's said to be like a little green gnome who appears neither young nor old. He's a mysterious guide, thought to be the union between the sacred and the profane. He's an eternal wanderer, and if you find Qadir, you get initiated into the wisdom of the universe, a knowledge that the Quran notes even the bees have. For Carl Jung, Kadir resembles the innermost self, the unifier of all of our contradictions. He's the harmonizer. Maybe a nine on the Enneagram? Hmm. Also a bit of a trickster. What number would that be? I'm not sure. <laughs> so anyhow, God says to Moses, pack a salted fish and seek the place where the two seas meet. 
There the dead fish will come to life. The scripture reads like this. Moses said unto his servant, I will not give up until I reach the point where the two rivers meet, even if I spend years and years traveling. And when they reached the point where the two rivers met, they forgot. They forgot about their salted fish, and it took its way into the waters, which means it jumped into the waters. I love how scriptures are like, it, it swimmeth there and took its way into, you know, it's like it just jumped into the water. Uh, swimming at will. When they traveled further, Moses and his servant realized, we don't have our meal. He says to his servant, bring me my meal. Truly, we're worn out with traveling. The servant replies, wait, but did you see what happened back there? When we were resting on the rock, I forgot. And the fish jumped back into the water and came back to life. None but Satan made me forget to tell you this. <laughs> Moses says, this is what we have been seeking. So they retrace their steps back to the place where the two waters come together, and they find Kadir, unto whom we have given mercy from our mercy and knowledge from our knowledge. When they travel back to the meeting place of the two seas, where the dead fish, also known as their lunch, came back to life, they are surrounded by these two waters that merge. Have you ever seen those pictures where like the Pacific Ocean and the um, Arctic Ocean meet? And it's like two colors colliding. Water symbolism is so rich. In dreams, it's often thought to be this joining of the conscious and the unconscious between thinking and knowing. The two C's could also symbolize our ability, our very human ability, to hold contradictions. The place where two things come together, two opposite things come together. It's our ability to be comfortable with uncertainty and tension. Identity politics so often want us to identify ourselves as one thing. It wants us to be locked into a box and contort us into these spaces that are not realistic. Every single person in this room is more than one thing. And identity politics also wants us to pick a side. We, there's been so much, um, I have many Israeli friends and many Muslim friends. I don't, I don't have a friend that I know of that either grew up in or is related to Palestine particularly. But I know that both, of, both sets of these friends are deeply hurting because every person is one degree removed from the violence that's happening right now. This trickster spiritual guide, Kadir, he reveals to us the mystical truths. He reveals that the dead fish coming back to life is the self who finds true expression, or the self that successfully navigates these waters where the two seas meet. In Sufism, this place is said to be the place that burns with love for the whole world. Sufism, as I learned that weekend, in the midst of all of this, the, the attacks on Gaza, is a religion rooted in love. That the expression, the bodily expression of Sufism is to love the world. To be so in love with the world that you will do anything to protect it. That also means being willing to be heartbroken by it. Hi, messages. <laughs> Wisdom, of course, is not a place. It's a state of being. It's less what we know and more about how we are, how we exist in the world. I looked this week, just for fun, at the byline of ordinary life. 
And this is what it says, wisdom teachings for ordinary mystics in ordinary life. No pressure. I thought, wait a minute, that's not me. I'm not a mystic, because the, the first picture of mysticism that I get is like uh, Bernini's Ascension of St. Teresa, right? She's like in utter ecstasy, and the angel is bringing her up to the golden rods, which resemble heaven. I've seen this sculpture in real life. Anyone else? I'm also not Mary Magdalene. <laughs> Gentileschi's Ma Mary Magdalene, just in utter, you know, awe. I've never been greeted by a band of angels or taken into a golden cloud of heavenly beings. I've never been consumed like this. So what can it mean to be an ordinary mystic? This is where we need Bill, right? <laughs> he made that up. Part of life is to live life on life's terms. I didn't mean to get to that slide. We could just hold it for a second. Even mystics have to take out the trash. We have to pick up dog poop. We have to wash the dishes. We have to fold the laundry, toss out the coffee grounds, right? I bet mystics even swear under their breath from time to time and maybe throw things on the floor when their team loses. <laughs> I didn't do that. Perhaps being an ordinary mystic is not removal from the world, but being immersed in it and learning to be ourselves in it. Taking a mystical approach is the start of the journey to the place where the two seas meet. It's to be in the journey at all, to learn to recognize and act on behalf of this underlying union that connects all things. So how do we do this? A couple of weeks ago, Bill mentioned the Stages of Faith by James Fowler. It's, it, I have not read this book in its entirety. It's considered kind of the canon of faith development. He has six stages that people go through, um, and it kind of follows also life stages. One critique of it is that it's very hierarchical. In other words, one stage is perceived as better than the other. So other people have taken his faith development and they've expanded it, they've simplified it. There's another book called The Different Drum by M. Scott Peck. He's the same guy who wrote The Road Less Traveled. And he wrote uh, this book that is about how to live in community in peace. It's a beautiful book, actually. And there's actually one, only one section dedicated to spiritual development. But his idea is that community is made up of all people feeling a sense of belonging, no matter where they are in spiritual growth. In this section, he divides it into four stages, which are, wait for it, called stage one, stage two, stage three, and stage four, <laughs> right? They're so clever with their naming. He explains how a person moves through each stage. They become a little less rigid. And to some degree, the stages are relevant to our age and our developmental capacity, both social, moral, and cognitive. But they also break down. We can each be in each stage. Stage one is called the antisocial or chaotic stage. It's characterized by an intense focus on the self without seeing beyond one's own needs. You can see how this would be prevalent in children. Children are supposed to be self-focused. It makes sense for children, but an, a stage one adult might be struggling with addiction and maybe manipulating others or stealing from others to meet the needs of that addiction. It's not just addicted adults, though. These are people who are dedicated to their own pleasure, 
their own power, their own success. But a person who frequently reverts to stage one might lash out in anger or regress to a very young age when they're in conflict, when things get hard. So you might coast along, but when things get hard, you might regress to these stage one behaviors. The primary value in stage one is self-gratification. You know you're here if you engage frequently in hedonistic activities, ones that are all about pleasure, all about one's own desire to please oneself. If you are only dedicated to your own personal success, moving from stage one to two is a, ra a relatively quick conversion from chaos to order, from instinct to conscience. It often happens really suddenly. We, people talk about their kind of um, conversion moments, right? Stage two, then, is called the formal institutional stage. And it's characterized by a very clear sense of right and wrong, strict boundaries around behavior, being a part of a religious tribe or community that relies on rules and tradition. God, in this case, is almost always perceived as out there, the all-powerful, all-loving being, both at once, but you really don't want to mess with this God, right? Because he can, what's, uh, okay, so Ryan Presley's walkout song, anyone? is a Johnny Cash song called uh, God's Gonna Cut You Down. The theology is terrible, <laughs> but, um, but it's a great song. And, and Ryan Presley, the closer for the Astros, uh, walks out to it every ninth inning that he closes. And the whole stadium waves their phones and sings along with the song, God's gonna cut you down. In other words, Ryan Presley is God who's gonna cut you down with his pitching. It's that, that's the God in stage two, right? God can cut you down, God can build you up that God, God is all-powerful. The primary values here are stability and security. The goal is to escape chaos and to find order. The goal is also to escape mystery. In other words, things need to make sense here. You know you're here if you prioritize certainty and structure over uncertainty and chaos. You want to know that your beliefs and opinions are correct. You may need a defined set of rules to live by. There's a right way to do things. I'm super stage two about the way you load the di dishwasher. Like there's a way to load the dishwasher. And I am known to like undo it and redo it. <laughs> if my, anyone else have that issue? No? Okay, all right, okay. <laughs> so that, that's my stage two-ness. In, in the relationship between stage one and two is referred to as backsliding. In other words, we can kind of toggle between these two, and when we are in stage two, we might backslide easily to stage one and then move again towards stage two. This person, so the, 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 the stage two person may also have moments of stage threeness, which we'll get to in a second, but it breaks down. Stage two begins to break down when people start to feel different from the communities that they're in. Maybe they start to question something in their familiar culture or institutions. Maybe a kid is gay and that doesn't work in that community. Maybe they go through a divorce and they are shunned. Maybe the church didn't take a stand for their gay niece or a black son around issues of inclusion or justice. Generally, moving from stage two to three is precipitated by a crisis. Something isn't working. And so you start to question all of the things that you've been taught or learned. We look somewhere else 
and we tend to bounce back and forth between stage two and three for a while. So we still need a certain amount of stability, order, and rules to live by, but we're also venturing towards questioning doubt and uncertainty. In this stage, God is much more nebulous, operating somewhere in this liminal space. God doesn't make sense, is only out there, but I'm not really sure what to replace that idea with. So we can easily, in a panic, return to stage two. Tell me the right way to believe. Tell me the right way to behave. We need rules, routine. And, and don't get me wrong, like all of us are operating in, in all of these, sometimes all at once, right? But if you're mostly in stage three, you're, you're kind of getting away from tradition and leaning more towards mystery. <coughs> stage three is the doubt, skepticism, or deconstructive stage, characterized by still the out there God is inadequate, but again, not knowing exactly where to place it. There's more gray area, there's less certainty. This is a time of struggle. People here might leave the tradition, but eventually come back to it with new eyes and a different heart. Here, some might even identify as agnostic or atheist, but still participate in the tradition because it's comforting, because it provides some kind of balm. The primary values here are mystery and uncertainty. We know we're here if we might say something like, yeah, church is great, but I can be just as close to God on the golf course on a Sunday, right? or in the mountains, or with my children. You might find yourself more comfortable with not knowing and occasionally dip into those needs for certainty. You might value your tradition, but you can hold it loosely alongside other traditions. In other words, there's not just the one truth. You might also be in turmoil. You know, so you can kind of see how each stage also has these gradations. Maybe the beginning of stage three is characterized by turmoil, whereas the moving to out of stage three towards stage four might be more at peace, at ease, with not knowing. The way things have always been is no longer a palatable excuse or rationale for you. We do this because it's the way it's always been. What's that story Bill loves to tell about the Easter roast? That, 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 that at Easter, uh, every year they have a tradition of making a roast and they cut the ends off the roast, put it in the pan and put it in the oven. And the grandkid says, uh, mom, why do we do it this way? And mom says, it's the way your grandparent did it. Go ask them. So the kid goes to the grandparent and says, why do we do it this way? And the grandparent says, it's the way your great-grandparent did it. And guess what? They're still alive. Go ask them. Great-grandparent sitting in the wheelchair waiting to be served the roast. And the little kid goes to them and says, why do we cut up the ends off the roast? And the great-grandparent says, because the oven wasn't big enough. Okay, now we have a big enough oven, we have a big enough pot, we can change the way we've always done it. So stage three starts to ask those questions. Um, Peck says here, we are able to get a glimpse of the big picture, and that to see that is very beautiful indeed. And it strangely resembles those primitive myths and superstitions that stage two parents and grandparents might believe in. At this point, though, they begin their conversion to stage four. So we value the myths. We value the, the sort of mystical truths, the fables, but we can see them differently. They're not literal to us anymore. 
I think a lot about the Aborigines who have this ha uh, practice of dream time. They operate fluidly between like the waking world and the sleeping world, the ancestral world and the spirit world, the real world and the not real. They talk to snakes, talk to birds. If they need advice, they ask the tiger. I don't think there's tigers in Australia, never mind, but <laughs> um, you get the drift. They're in constant communication with all of the elements of the world around them. None of it's literal, but all of it is true. Like all the other stages, there's also movement between three and four. There is linear progression from stage one to two to three to four, and we toggle between each of them. All of us have the capacity to exist in stage one. We also all have the capacity to exist in stage four. In stage four, called the mysticism or communal stage, it's characterized by the realization that all things are interconnected. It becomes harder to take a side when injustice is occurring because you can see that gray area. Religion is another way to encounter mystery here, but factions are not so important. Joy and compassion are what one leads with. One accepts that loving someone is also about loss, that there's so little we have control over. I am so in the thick of that with my middle son right now. I can control very little of what he does, what he says, what he eats, what he listens to anymore. He's 13. He has, he's with his friends more than he is with me, and yet he's making choices that are not good for him. He's, let me say he's making choices within the safe zone of failure. <laughs> we haven't lost him yet, but you know, as a parent, you're like, what are you thinking? <laughs> and I don't, I can't control it, and so I must accept that love there equals loss. I think we have to accept that from parent, as parents from day one. The primary values here are to embrace chaos and mystery. You embrace wisdom and inclusion. How do you know if you're here? You're more driven by being rather than knowing. You might experience desires for more joy and compassion and actually look for ways to adopt that into your daily life. A clear definition of God doesn't exist here and may not be very important, but you don't necessarily transfer that to being certain about what is not God either. In other words, holding the mystery. You seek goodness for its own sake, not for external reward or self-gratification. You're okay with ambiguity and tension. One of the things that Peck writes about is the intense feeling of loneliness in stage four. To be here is in a sense to be homeless, to not feel rooted in any one place or one tradition. You have differentiated at this point from the culture that raised you, and you're able to look at it from a great distance, to observe it, right? Sometimes with profound longing for those simpler times of when I was a kid, things were so easy, right? So we sometimes find ways to try to get back there where things might make sense. The movement between three and four is less about commitment to a specific tradition and more about living as one's authentic self. This internalization of principles that guide you and around interconnectedness. Moses has a stage three moving towards stage four conversion when he encounters the place where the two seas meet. 
After stage one, the movement between two to three and three to four are called conversions, and they typically happen over time. You might sort of find yourself in more stage three thinking and not even realize that you got there because it may have taken years to deconstruct the, 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 the tr traditions that you grew up in. There's a story about a man who, by all means, had journeyed around the world. He discovered places where the two seas met. He left his small rural Appalachian town where, his high, where high school prom queens and football ruled. And he discovered the world. He's called back home as an adult when his niece, one of the queens in the homecoming game, asked him to be her escort because her father had died. And he says, of course I'll be there. I'll come right back. He goes back joyfully. He's excited. And he's later recounting the whole weekend to a friend. And every small detail comes to life. The colors of the dresses, the type of lace edging each of them, how many times they looped around the football field and the different color convertibles that matched their dresses. My homecoming was not, I was also not a queen, but my homecoming was not that elaborate. As he's recounting this story, he's speaking wistfully. He notices that he's feeling sad ever since returning. But he also notices that he could never go back there and live there. He couldn't be in this world anymore that has such tight and rigid rituals. And the other thing is he's also able to know that he's different from it because he can recall every detail of it as if an observer. We can't do that when we're still in it. Make sense? He misses the belonging, he misses the simplicity, but he also knows he can't return. And that's the tension that you bear in stage four. I miss it, I love it, I long for it even, but I know I am not of it. The growing awareness between all the stages is that whatever we call God is not out there. Have we heard that before in this space? but right here. God is both imminent and transcendent. The Gospel of Thomas quotes Jesus as saying, split a piece of wood and I am there. A good way to measure where you are is in looking honestly at how you handle conflict and difficulty. This is hard to do. All of us, I don't know a single person, including myself, who doesn't want to be right when we're in conflict. That we're doing it the right way, <laughs> right? But a question is, do you avoid conflict? In other words, do you avoid it by soothing the self with something else, whether it's binge watching TV or drinking or doing drugs or just going out all night? I don't go out all night anymore. <laughs> that sounds exhausting. <laughs> um, do you look for answers, as in stage two? Do you look for the reasons why this existing? Do you need a do you need structure around it? Do you become overwhelmed and maybe there isn't one answer? Or are you able to be present when conflict occurs? I think it's really easy when we're not in conflict to look at these stages and kind of identify, oh yeah, we're all in stage four. Because right now maybe we are. But it's really when, the, when, when, when things get hard is the better time to actually ask ourselves what stage might I be in. And we can't do that unless we've gotten far enough away from that, from stage one, let's say, to be able to observe ourselves in it. So part of stage four is trusting that pain is part of the existence. And the other part of stage four is that in each stage, 
The difficulty is in letting go of something from the previous stage that has kept us safe from pain. So if we can observe ourselves, let's say in stage three, operating in stage two or stage one behaviors, and we can say, oh, that used to protect me from pain, we know we're able to observe it and we can move differently. Observing the self is a huge part of growth. We're conditioned in some sense to see the stages as hierarchical. And that was, again, one of the critiques of Fowler's work is that they are. But it's virtually impossible not to see one as better than the other. But the consideration here is that each of us has aspects of all of them in us. And that fourness might be more about integrating each of those stages than it is about being squarely in four all of the time. Does that make sense? I would go full on like feral stage one if someone messed with my kids, right? And in the right way, if they messed with me, if there was a direct, direct threat on my bite, I'd do anything I could to get out of that situation. That's the kind of fighter, right? Um, if we needed to evacuate our city in a hurricane, or as the people in Maine just had to do shelter in place to avoid a, 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 a killer, I would follow those rules. I would not start questioning the, 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 the authenticity of those rules. I'd say, okay, put me in a car and let's do what we need to do. I would start asking questions, however, if I was part of a community that doesn't support the people I love, if they didn't feel at home in that community. That's when you start to leave home, is when you realize that the people that you love are not welcome in that space. It's a necessary move, and it is so painful. And in my very best stage four moments, I'd be able to examine and acknowledge that all of these exist are aspects of myself, that I'm not just one thing, and I would be able to show compassion to each. You can look at the self and go, oh, yeah, that little hurting person right now just wants to numb out. Right? Like, or, oh, gosh, yeah, I really need a rule around this because I have no freaking clue what to do. So stage four is about also showing compassion to the self, acknowledging that we are complex. We are rife with contradictions. We're sometimes compelled by impulses that betray our wisdom. And sometimes we're guided by wisdoms that soothe our impulses. Both are true. Peck writes, yet through the ages, mystics of every shade of religious belief have spoken of unity of an underlying connectedness between things, between men and women, between us and the other creatures, and even inanimate matter, a fitting together according to an ordinarily invisible fabric underlying the cosmos. This is a stage four thought, right? In stage four, people love mystery, and they even seek it out. They might find themselves participating in traditional religious communities, they want, but they want to penetrate ever deeper into it. They want to understand the why, the how, the what, all of it. At this stage, someone realizes that the whole world is a community and that violence, any act of violence, is the lack of this awareness. Note the similarities between mystery and mysticism. Those roots are connected. And while stage four might demonstrate more joy and compassion, I also think someone in this stage has to allow themselves to feel heartbroken. We feel the pain of disunion in this stage. We feel the pain of 
of the lack of holistic approaches to well-being, we feel the pain of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that people who just want to live their lives are dying. In stage two, however, the difference is that there is little taste for the unknown and little tolerance for difference. Here, people enter religion in order to escape mystery, not to seek it out. I'm imagining that stage three or four thinking is challenged when something like 9-11 or this current conflict happens. In those moments, we're very often thrust back into our identities. We're thrust back into taking sides. The moment in crisis, we're so easily pulled back to that sort of right, wrong, black, white, us, them thinking. This is the most human thing I can think of, that we want to know that we're on the right side of good. And so we try to choose the sides, and it's so seductive in these moments to try and choose the right side. It's normal to want security. It's normal to want certainty, especially in times of uncertainty and insecurity. To be aware of this, though, I'm longing for security when there's nothing secure, is to become more human. It is also to advance through the stages. I'm aware of what I'm longing for, and I know that that longing is hard to get. Faith development applies beyond religious traditions. It also applies to how we develop as conscious people. You don't have to have a faith to go through these stages. We can look at it as moving from um, disorder to order and then being able to also hold disorder in the order. So in some ways, we're like constantly going like this, right? Once we can name a thing, we can more accurately identify how we are operating in it. There's a Chinese, of course there's a Chinese proverb that speaks to this. The right naming of things is the beginning of wisdom. So we know the stages exist. We can name them. We can start to wisen ourselves to where we exist within them and how we exist in each one at different times. Here's how you can tell if you've moved on to a new stage. If you catch yourself judging, or feeling sorry for the person you perceive to be one stage below you. That's like, oh, I just moved up, <laughs> or over, or forward, or whatever it is. That judgment is also a vestige of that stage still in you, right? We judge the things we don't want to be. It's also normal to feel threatened by those perceived to be ahead of you. So if you find yourself judging these and feeling threatened by those, you can know that you're kind of toggling in between. Peck says, if people are one step ahead of us, we usually admire them. If they are two steps ahead of us, we think they are crazy. <laughs> think of how the empire, usually empires, societies, operate at stage two because societies require a certain kind of obedience, a certain kind of um, faith in the empire to get things done, right? They require loyalty. Think of how the empire treated Jesus. The empire probably at stage two, this is the right way to act. These are the rules we live by. Jesus was like, ah, ah, I'm over here in stage four. <laughs> and they had him killed, right? They thought he was a lunatic. But if, like Moses, you're asking, where do we find Kadir? Where is the place where the two seas meet and the dead fish comes to life? The answer is right here. You're already there. The place is inside. 
It's within, and the longing for it is the journey. The longing to know it is the journey. It's the journey towards wisdom. Both the world and our innermost being exist constantly in this kind of chaotic dance of opposites. A simple question could be, am I developing the eyes to see that and the heart to feel it differently? I love this man. I know y'all are not going to be able to read the words. <laughs> um, it's like a lot to put on one slide. Clint Smith is a poet and writer, uh, and he has a new book of poems. And the first one, it, the, the, the book of poems is called Above Ground, and the very first one is called All at Once. The redwoods are on fire in California. A flood submerges a neighborhood that sat quiet on the coast for three centuries. A child takes their first steps and tumbles into a father's arms. Two people in New Orleans fall in love under an oak tree whose branches bend like sorrow. A forest of seeds are planted in new soil. A glacier melts into the ocean and the sea climbs closer to the land. A man comes home from war and holds his son for the first time. A man is killed by a drone that thinks his jug of water is a bomb. Your best friend relapses and isn't picking up. Your son's teacher calls to say he stood up for another boy in class. A country below the equator ends a 20-year civil war. A soldier across the Atlantic fires the shot that begins another. The scientists find a vaccine that will save millions of people's lives. Your mother's cancer has returned, and doctors say there's nothing else they can do. There's a funeral procession in the morning and a wedding in the afternoon. The river that gives us water to drink is the same one that might wash us away. This is stage four, the both andness of life. Smith's poem reads to me like a meditation, an acknowledgement of the impossibility of understanding anything at all, but maybe living as if we can make room for all of it. The four stages of faith require one another because each stage also needs teachers, right? Generally speaking, a stage one person is gonna learn best from a stage two person, is gonna learn best from a stage three person, is gonna learn best from a stage four person. A stage four person is not gonna relate very well to a stage one person who's just trying to feed the addiction. They'll be like, it's all good, we're all one over here, and the stage one person is like, I'm fighting for my life. Right? So we need all of these stages because we need teachers for each. And communities need all of them. Most of us are pulling someone up with one hand while we ourselves are being pulled up by the other. If we existed with people only in one stage who were just like us, that would be called a clique, maybe a cult, not a community. To obtain peace, we have to learn to live with all of the stages, all of the people, and to love them through it. To recap, the wisdom of the stages. We are not here to judge people perceived to be at different stages than us. Naming them helps us transcend the sense of threat that divides us. If doctrine, this man that I listened to on, a, on that Sunday of the, listening to the three Abrahamic faiths, he said, if doctrine ever becomes more important than a person, let go of the doctrine, not the person. 
That's hard for a stage two, stage two person. But that's how we get to stage three. Is my doctrine more, in person, more important than a person? Four, if we experience growth in the stages, when we can, then we can acknowledge the vestiges of each residing within. We ought not to castigate those vestiges of each stage, but integrate them, welcome them, welcome them home. And stage four is not an ending. It's, a place, it's not a place to land and stop growing. It's the very beginning of growth and wisdom, of freedom. It's the definition of community, of emptying. Stage four is the beginning of doubt. It's to doubt your doubts, <laughs> right? My favorite biblical story, I might have mentioned this once or twice, uh, the story of Jacob and the angel is also happens to be a perfect example of struggling through the stages. Before Jacob wrestles the angel, he's stage one. He's a liar, he's a cheat, he's a manipulator, he'll do anything to get he wants. And in his desperate struggle that lasts through this dark night, he wanted to cling to something known. He wanted to cling to certainty. And the angel who represents the face of God won't let him cling. In fact, I'm gonna say she keeps trying to get rid of him, right? He's trying to hang on for dear life. And by morning, finally, she gets him off her. He lets go and he says, please bless me. And the angel says, henceforth you shall be called Israel, he who has struggled with God. And he's sent off in the future with a limp forever. Each stage is a kind of advancement of that struggle, an epic wrestling match that we're in that brings us ever closer to the essence of our holiness, the essence of our true selves. Peck writes that Israel includes the entirety of our struggling infant humanity. It is the whole potential for community on the planet. We are all some aspect of Israel. This transformation from Jacob to Israel is such an intensely human struggle. It's our struggle to, of woundedness and to bear those wounds more heroically. Each person, each one of us has inherent dignity. Every single person has inherent dignity. No one can take that away from us. But we can choose to live in ways that honor our dignity and others, or we can choose to live in ways that don't. That's how we get away from our dignity. It doesn't disappear. It's how we choose to act. In the process of wrestling, the purpose is to discover our wholeness and to call others into theirs. When we move through and between these stages, the, the goal is not to become more holy, but to recover what has always been. The seminar that I was in ended the other weekend with this man. He was a delight. I think he's 83, Father Tom Bonacci. He's the director of the Interfaith Peace Project in Antioch, California. He said, all day he said some of the most beautiful words I have heard in a long time. And among them were, the essence of holiness is to be fully oneself. The essence of justice is to create conditions that allow others to be fully themselves. Let us live in such a way that each of us can recover our holiness. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. Thank you.